Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse-by-verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry, reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations For his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven in numerology is very important, and these seven verses open Paul's masterpiece. Romans is a remarkable book. This epistle is so deep and so profound and spiritually so rich that most teachers won't even touch it. But I, Lord willing, will approach it with reverence, with care and humility. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who was then called to be an apostle. Nobody called Paul to be an apostle and nobody laid their hands on Paul in order for him to become an apostle. He was chosen directly from the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9. He also says from chapter 1 verse 1, he was separated unto the gospel of God, meaning he was now set apart to be a servant and an apostle. He wrote the book, literally, when it comes to how Christians should live and function. What this man forgot, we shall never know meaning he learnt everything, he knew everything. He wasn't sinless, but he was a remarkable man of God. And we can learn so much from the Apostle Paul. In verse 2, Paul mentions the Holy Scriptures, the Jewish Tanakh. Paul was a Jew of the Jews. He knew the Old Testament inside out. And he knew that religion could not save him, and religion cannot save you. You must be born again. In verse 3 he says Jesus was made of the seed of David. The Lord Jesus Christ has two natures. He is God, he is divine, he is eternal. And at the same time he is also man. In 4 BC he was born. And as a son of man he is in the line of King David. He is the Jewish Messiah. In verse 4 he says the Son of God was declared with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The most profound event in the history of mankind 
is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus is mentioned in verse 1, as is God the Father, and in verse 4, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Three in one, one in three, and the one in the middle died for me. That's a trinity, of course. Okay, so moving on through the epistle to the Romans, and during the last broadcast, we found God the Son in chapter 1, verse 1, and God the Father in chapter 1, verse 1. We also found God the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 4. The triune God created the universe, and the triune God resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 2, the Lord Jesus resurrects himself from the dead, and in Galatians chapter 1, God the Father resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Here in verse 4, the Holy Spirit is credited with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So each member of the Godhead resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2 and 3, Paul says that the Old Testament scriptures promised the coming of the Jewish Messiah. There are over 68 prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, written hundreds if not thousands of years before he was even born. 68 prophecies written about a king and his kingdom. The king, of course, is Jesus Christ, and the kingdom is the kingdom of God. Yes, 41 authors living on three continents over 1,600 years apart wrote the Bible, but God inspired them to write the Holy Scriptures. They wrote what he told them to write. The Bible is divine in origin, not human. You can trust it totally and completely. And we discovered from chapter 1, verse 3, how Jesus was made after the seed of David. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. God, of course, is eternal. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. And he is omniscient. But he chose to enter into the human race and become a man and die for the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, the word of God says the following, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succour them that are tempted. So the Lord Jesus Christ really does know what it's like to live on this earth, to suffer on this earth, and to die on this earth. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, you can know him. Just call on his name, and he will reach out, and he will grab you. No other religious person, no other deity, went through what he went through. He was a king. He came down from heaven to earth. And he paid for all of our sins on the cross. We saw it in verse 4. The Son of God was declared with power by the resurrection from the dead. He is God and he is man. So we are still in the first seven verses of the epistle to the Romans. Like I said from the beginning of this broadcast, this book is very deep and very profound. And we have discovered so much during the first two broadcasts of this new series of recordings looking at the epistle to the Romans. In verse 5 he says, We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Peter, John and Andrew and James no doubt are in his mind. Paul was a very humble man. 
chapter 1, verse 1, he says he was a servant. But for the namesake of the Lord Jesus, they have received the office of an apostle. Not only did the apostles write the New Testament, but they did many, many miracles. Peter and Paul resurrected dead people. They cast out devils from unsaved people. They were eyewitnesses to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul was saved post the crucifixion, but he saw the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that he was taken up to the third heaven. That is where the Lord God of the Bible resides. In verse 6, he says, Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ? These people are Christians. They are followers. They are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. And verse 7, he says to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Once you are born again, you are automatically made a saint by God, by the new birth. No church can make you a saint. Only God can make you a saint. And these saints in Rome are beloved of God. With the Roman Empire pretty much governing most of the world at this point in the history of mankind, Paul knew that if he could make it to Rome, not only would more people be saved as a result of his preaching, but through his preaching, he could reach out to the rest of the world and see millions of people saved by the preaching of the cross. But as of writing this epistle, he has still to make it to Rome. That's his goal. Rome, as I say, was the capital of the entire world when he wrote this epistle. If he can make it there, he can make it anywhere for the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory and for his namesake. So moving on through the epistle to the Romans and during the last few broadcasts, I showed you how much material was found in the first seven verses. And seven and also eight are very important numbers when it comes to the subject of numerology. But let's start this broadcast in verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. This has got to be one of the most profound statements in the scriptures. He's written to the Romans from verse seven and he says their faith is spoken of throughout the entire world. Can you imagine that? When you get saved, there should be a change within you. Not only will you know it, but people around you will see it. But these people go one step further than that. Their faith is known abroad. And Paul, quite rightly, is commending them for such a faith. Also of interest to me, Paul says, I thank my God. This is very Pauline. In his epistles, he would normally say, the Lord Jesus Christ is our saviour. But here, and in other parts of the New Testament, he does say, my God. And also, you will find in this epistle, my gospel. Paul was a Jew of the Jews. And here, the Jewish apostle 
is writing to the Gentiles. There were some Jews at Rome at this stage, I believe, but by and large he is speaking to Gentile people and he has still retained some of that Jewishness. My God, my Saviour, my Gospel. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. That was his plan. Like I say, he wanted to make it to Rome, and once he made it to Rome, he knew that the word of God would go out to all of the earth, and mankind would be forever changed. Verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end ye may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you, by the mutual faith both of you and me. Can you appreciate what you've just heard here? Paul has been saved for X amount of years. He is going to write half of the New Testament. He has been to the third heaven and back. And yet he is saying that these people in Rome have something that he wants to share with. They have a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But much more than that, he wants to visit them, fellowship with them, and impart some spiritual gift to them. This group of Bible-believing Christians must have been very precious and very special and very rare in the eyes of the Apostle Paul. And like I say, his goal now is to get to Rome. It's not going to be easy because the Roman emperors at the time of him writing this epistle and their secret police were very much against Christianity. Why? Because they were monotheist. They were no threat to the state, but they would not worship false pagan gods. They would not worship their idols, their images. So Paul has to make it to Rome, but it's not going to be easy. So continuing on through the epistle to the Romans, and if you haven't already appreciated, chapter 1 is filled with good material. There is so much substance in the book of the Romans, but chapter 1 is amazing. Let's start this broadcast from verse 13. Now I would not have you ignorant brethren, that oftentimes... I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. This early community must have been basking in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is desperate to get to Rome, like I say. He wants to fellowship with them. He wants to worship with them. He wants to be with them. Their testimonies were magnificent. But verse 13 makes it very clear that he wasn't able to get there. He wanted to travel there on many occasions, but it wasn't always possible. Why not? Because the devil was always against the Apostle Paul. If you are saved, if you have an active, life-changing ministry, the devil is always going to be on your back. The Apostle Paul was the greatest man that ever lived, and yet he could not shake Satan off his back. He had to live every single day like it was his last day, and the Lord gave him the grace to do so. Look at verse 14. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you come across a piece of scripture which isn't always clear, you need to go to another piece of scripture and compare scripture with scripture. That's one of the cardinal rules of hermeneutics. 
Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start in verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without the law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Please go back to Romans chapter 1. What we have just seen in 1 Corinthians 9 further expounds what we just discovered in Romans chapter 1 verse 14. He was a servant to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. Chapter 1 verse 1. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. Meaning he was all things to all people that he might save some. In today's world, we would call Paul a people's person, and he did it to perfection. Also from verse 14, Greeks would be Gentiles, as would barbarians to some extent. Some people are going to be wise and some people are going to be unwise. But until you are saved, you are outside of the kingdom of God. So moving on through the epistle to the Romans and the last broadcast, I showed you how the Apostle Paul lowered himself to fit in with every type of person. We found from verse 14 how he was a debtor both to the Greeks, the educated people of his day, and also to the barbarians, the uneducated people, the illiterate people, the lower of the lower class people. He was all things to all people, including the Jews. He says in the later chapters of Romans how he wished he was accursed for the sake of his people, that they might be saved. This man had a huge heart. What this man forgot, we will never know. Like I say, he wrote the book and he set the example as to how all Bible-believing Christians should live. He was a one-off man. But we don't worship the Apostle Paul, we worship the triune God. Our faith is in a triune God. Not Paul, not Peter, not James, not John. Not even in the Bible. We are saved by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But in order to grow in grace and be an effective Bible-believing Christian, we have to read the Bible, we have to believe the Bible, and we have to apply the Bible and what it clearly states to every aspect of our lives. So let's start today's broadcast in verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. At this point in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he had travelled around most of the Roman Empire. He wrote the Epistle to the Romans around 56 AD. And you can feel the anticipation building up. He has got to get to Rome. These people are so unique. They have an excellent testimony. Unlike the Corinthians that were carnal, unlike the Galatians that were legalistic, these people were the best of the best, and he has got to get to Rome. Please look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, 
and also to the Greek. Yet another profound statement. Two points from verse 16 which really stand out. Number one, the Apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, he says the power of the gospel was available to everyone that believeth, to the Jew and also to the Greek. Meaning quite simply that if the Jew believed on Jesus, he stroke she would be saved. And if the Greek believed on the Lord Jesus, he stroke she would be saved as well. The Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world without exception. But only those that believe on him are going to be saved. So we are still in the first chapter of the book of the Romans. And I showed you all from verse 16 last time how the Apostle Paul at this late stage of his life was not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. But at this stage, he had grown to become a mature, well-grounded, Bible-believing Christian. Timothy, on the other hand, half the age of the Apostle Paul, was ashamed. Therefore, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, and you're not yet confident enough to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't worry. It will come all in good time. Paul had decades to perfect his walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, I want to quickly squeeze in one important footnote from verse 16. Paul says that the power of the gospel could save Jew and Greek. Please turn to John chapter 6. Scripture with scripture. Please look at verse 44. Jesus speaking. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up. At the last day. This is a favourite passage for the Calvinists. And they read this verse. And they normally stop there. Please turn to John chapter 12. Again scripture with scripture. To understand what the Bible clearly states. Not what you have been told. The Bible teaches. Please look at verse 32. Jesus speaking again. And I. If I be lifted up from the earth. Will draw all men unto me. You can't come to the Father unless the Father draws you to him. The Father being God, of course. And here, God the Son says, I will draw all men unto me. When did this happen? When he was lifted up from the earth. First of all, the resurrection. Secondly, at the ascension. He has drawn all men unto him. Some people say, well, he hasn't granted repentance to everybody. Please turn to Acts chapter 5. Again, scripture with scripture. Acts chapter 5. Please look at verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God has already granted repentance to the Jews. Please turn to Acts chapter 11. We are not finished yet. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So here the Gentiles have also been granted repentance unto life. 
One more scripture, please. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 19, please. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. John chapter 6 showed you the source of the new birth. God the Father drawing sinners unto his Son. John chapter 12 showed you how the Lord Jesus Christ has now drawn all men unto himself. Chapter 1 verse 1, God the Son is mentioned and God the Father. Chapter 1 verse 4, God the Holy Spirit is mentioned in reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, the triune God are found throughout the entire Bible. But my main point from verse 16 is that Christ is the power to salvation for those that believe. Acts chapter 5, God has granted repentance to the Jews. Acts chapter 11, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Be ye reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul, of course. God has drawn all men unto himself. But what does verse 16 say one more time? For it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. Believe. Trust. Receive. The Lord Jesus Christ. So let's conclude this broadcast in verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Once you are born again, you have been justified, and therefore, as a just man or woman, you now live by faith. Not a blind faith. You have the Holy Scriptures to read, to meditate, and to obey, and you have the triune God living within you. The just shall live by faith. You got saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, now you live and function by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so continuing on through the epistle to the Romans. And last time we finished at verse 17, where the Apostle Paul was quoting from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And the scripture says, the just shall live by faith. Once you are saved, you walk and live by faith. Never mind prophecies, never mind visions, never mind what he said or what she said. What saith the scripture? You are saved by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you, not what you do for him. Our faith isn't a blind faith. For those of us that have been saved, our lives have been totally transformed by a man who lived 2,000 years ago. If you want to know the will of God for your life, you need to read the word of God each and every day. So let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath shown it unto them. There's two parts to this piece of scripture from verses 20, 21 and 22 right the way down to 23, 24 the Apostle Paul says that the creation of the universe is evidence of a creator. A house doesn't build itself, a watch doesn't build itself. 
there's always a creator. A design always presupposes a designer. And the designer, in this case, is the Lord God of the Bible. But from verses 18 and 19, Paul is focusing on the wrath of God abiding on mankind in relation to his conscience. When you sin, your conscience tells you that you have sinned. That comes from heaven, not from man. You are made in the image of God. Your conscience comes from heaven. And therefore, when you die and stand before him, you cannot say to the Lord of the universe, I didn't know it was wrong to steal or murder or commit adultery. Your heart convicted you when you sinned. But scripture tells us that men love darkness rather than light. Therefore, this is a heart issue, not a head issue. So through your conscience... We are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior as a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com Or you can write to us at ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL11LD, England. That's ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL11LD, England. Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse-by-verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry, reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. Okay, so continuing on for the epistle to the Romans, and last time we finished at verse 17, where the Apostle Paul was quoting from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And the scripture says the just shall live by faith. Once you are saved, you walk and live by faith. Never mind prophecies, never mind visions, never mind what he said or what she said. What saith the scripture? You are saved by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did for you, not what you do for him. Our faith isn't a blind faith. For those of us that have been saved, our lives have been totally transformed by a man who lived 2,000 years ago. If you want to know the will of God for your life, you need to read the word of God each and every day. So let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God 
is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. There's two parts to this piece of scripture, from verses 20, 21 and 22, right the way down to 23, 24. The Apostle Paul says that the creation of the universe is evidence of a creator. A house doesn't build itself, a watch doesn't build itself. There's always a creator. A design always presupposes a designer. And the designer, in this case, is the Lord God of the Bible. But from verses 18 and 19, Paul is focusing on the wrath of God abiding on mankind in relation to his conscience. When you sin, your conscience tells you that you have sinned. That comes from heaven, not from man. You were made in the image of God. Your conscience comes from heaven. And therefore, when you die and stand before him, you cannot say to the Lord of the universe, I didn't know it was wrong to steal or murder or commit adultery. Your heart convicted you when you sinned. But scripture tells us that men love darkness rather than light. Therefore, this is a heart issue, not a head issue. So through your conscience, you know there is a creator. But due to your love of sin and your hatred of God, you choose to ignore him and suppress what you do know of him through unrighteousness through carnality, through righteous living. Therefore, when you die and stand in his presence, you won't be found not guilty, but you will be found guilty, and you will go into the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. He died for you, he has atoned for your sins, but you didn't want him, you chose to reject him, and embrace everything and anything except him. So we are still very much in chapter 1 of the Epistle to the Romans, as I've said from the beginning of these broadcasts, this book is very deep. And this book is quite possibly the greatest book in the entire Bible. Yes, Genesis told us about creation. Yes, the Gospels told us about our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this book tells us how man functions. And this book tells us why men do what they do. And this book also tells us how the Lord deals with unrighteousness and sin. This book is very deep, very profound, and like I say, most Bible-believing teachers rarely, if ever, study and teach the book of Romans. So Lord willing, let's continue on as I go through these series of broadcasts, and let's start in this broadcast for today in verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Genesis chapter 6, the Lord said that man's heart, his imaginations, were only evil continually. So he sends the flood to destroy the earth. If God wanted to, he could destroy everybody living today. People sometimes say, why does the Lord not intervene and deal with this person, or that person, or this sin, or that sin? Well, if he did, you would be destroyed, and I would be destroyed. But thankfully, he is a loving and merciful and understanding saviour. But 20 and 21 are completely and totally damning when it comes to man's accountability in the eyes of the Lord. 18 and 19 dealt with the conscience of mankind. 20 and 21 
are now focusing on the creation of the world. Like I said, a creation always presupposes a creator. 20 says that mankind understands that God is God. Even the invisible things of him are understood by mankind in general. But instead of thanking him and worshipping him, they do the complete opposite. Look at verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The children of Israel for decades, if not centuries, had the problem of idolatry. Let's build us an image and worship it. Aaron fell into that sin and subsequently died as a result of that sin. Mankind must believe in something and mankind must have an image to worship. But verse 17, Paul told you, the just shall live by faith, not sight. Images, which are then accredited to represent the God of the Bible, are prohibited in both testaments. God hates it. Why do you think there are no accounts of how the Lord Jesus Christ looked? Because God doesn't want people painting pictures of him and turning around and telling people that is what Jesus looked like. No, he is far too beautiful. He is far too holy. He is far too righteous to be penned by a hand of a carnal artist. God does not want that. And these people found here in 20 and 21 and 22 think they are wise, but in essence they are fools. And God despises these people. During the last broadcast we looked at the Lord's condemnation for sinful man. Man is accountable to the Lord through creation and through his conscience. But instead of man worshipping the Lord of the Bible, he creates animals, he creates images, and he worships the creation of the Lord rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And God is a jealous God. The Lord did not make mankind in order for mankind to ignore him and create gods in their own image. Man was made in the image of the triune God. And when God's judgment comes, it's going to come very hard and very fast. So make sure you are on the right side of the issue here. You cannot be impartial when it comes to the issue of who the triune God is. You are either for him or you are against him. It's as simple as that. But these people here are condemned clearly for ignoring the Lord, for creating false images and worshipping them instead of the Lord God of the Bible. Idolatry. Pure and simple, and he hates it. So what happens when mankind rejects the Lord and goes his own way? Look at verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Scripture with scripture. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. When man turns from the Lord and continues to turn from the Lord, the Lord gives man up to his sin. But before the Lord gives him up to his sin, he has already given himself up to sin found here 
In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 19. God waits and he waits and he waits. He is not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But if mankind continues to harden his heart, and if mankind continues to go his own way, found here in Ephesians 4.19, the Lord says, fine, I will now give you up to uncleanness. And once he gives you up to uncleanness, there is no going back. You are finished. So we are still in Romans chapter 1. And last time we looked at verses 24 and 25. And we also saw from Ephesians chapter 4, how man, first of all, gives himself over to a reprobate mind. And if he continues to live in that way of life, the Lord gives him up completely and totally and permanently. And once God does that, there's no going back for you. You are now dead in your sins and forever separated from the Lord God of the Bible. That's your choice, not his. You have a free will, as did Adam, as did Eve. So when you die and stand before him, you only have yourself to blame. Pure and simple. So let's start today's broadcast in verse 26. And the theme has not changed. Man has abandoned God and God has given man up to his sin. What happens when this occurs? Verse 26, please. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men work in that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet. Paul goes right to the heart of the issue. Women, first of all, are given over to their sin, and they embrace in same-sex relations, known today as lesbianism, completely against nature, according to the Apostle Paul, and found very clearly in both Testaments. Also for women to be singled out as being given over to this type of sin, underscores once again just how deep and endemic sin is. Normally it's men that fall into sin, and they corrupt women. But here Paul says women have also fallen into sin, and they too are going to corrupt their male counterparts. Women fell into sin here with lesbianism, and in verse 27, men are now lusting after one another. Homosexuality, as it's known today, but the Bible calls it sodomy. Not only does the Apostle Paul say that women with women and men with men is against nature, but he also says that they will receive in themselves their recompense of the error which is meet, meaning judgment is going to come on them. The Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for this very thing. If he did it then, back in the Old Testament, he's going to do it again at his return. The Lord is holy, the Lord is righteous. He made women for men. Not men for men, and not women for women. Man and woman produce child. That is natural, and that is nature, with a capital N. So we are nearing the end of chapter 1 of the Epistle to the Romans. And if you haven't yet realised, this is a very controversial book. Hence why most Bible-believing Christians and teachers rarely delve into it. And teach it, and preach it, and present it to their audience. It's controversial. It's not politically correct to believe and to proclaim what is found 
in this part of the New Testament. Last time we saw the Lord giving men and women up to their sin. And at the end of verse 27, Paul says, These people are going to receive the recompense for the error of their ways. AIDS, gonorrhea and syphilis are just some of the consequences of mankind living a lifestyle which the Lord hates and detests. He can save people out of any sin imaginable, but you have to come to him and say, Lord, please be merciful to me, a sinner. The just shall live by faith. But you have to call out to him and beg him to save you. And he will change you the moment he grabs you. And he will change you from within. And you will now live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Things that you once did in your past that you loved, you are now going to hate. And things you once hated, you are now going to love. It's a paradox, of course. But that is what the new nature does to a saved man or a saved woman. As I say, he will change you from within. He makes dead men alive. Look at verse 28 for this broadcast, please. And even as they did not like to attain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. These verses are pretty much a comprehensive list of sins which come from the heart. Like I said, this is a heart issue, not a head issue. Your heart is desperately wicked pre the new birth. He starts in verses 26 and 27 looking at sodomy and lesbianism and he condemns it. 29, 30 and 31 he opens it up even more. People without natural affection are paedophiles, backbiters, haters of God, modern day atheists found everywhere, disobedient to parents, children now divorcing their parents, fornication, premarital sex. And by 32, the Apostle Paul says that such people are worthy of death. And not just them, but those that have pleasure in such people that commit such sins. Therefore, in essence, the Apostle Paul is telling us that all unsaved sinners are worthy of death. Okay, so we have just finished Romans chapter 1. And before we go to chapter 2, I want to offer some more thoughts as to what we've just read and seen. Paul here very clearly outlines the sins of the flesh, the sins of mankind. And if you die in this way of life, you are going to be forever separated from the Lord. But he can change you, he can rescue you, and he can give you a new heart. But as I've said repeatedly, you have to be born again in order to be saved, in order to be rescued, and in order to be changed. Please turn to Matthew chapter 15, 
scripture with scripture. Just to avoid any doubt and to prove that the entire Bible is consistent when it comes to the sins of man, the sins of the flesh. We've seen what the Apostle Paul said about these sins, but what does the Lord Jesus Christ say about these sins? Look at Matthew 15 verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Look at verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. Look at verse 20. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. The Lord Jesus said these are evil thoughts. Murders. Hating someone is murder. Adultery. Lusting after someone is adultery. Fornications. Premarital sex is fornication and God hates it. Thefts. Stealing. False witness. Lying. Being deceitful. And blasphemies. Taking his name in vain. He says it's evil and he condemns it. And this word for fornications or fornication is pornia. It's the Greek word for pornography, which covers everything. All illicit sins of the flesh. Pedophilia, homosexuality, bestiality, everything. And the Lord says it's evil, it's wicked. And I will give you one more scripture and then I will conclude this broadcast. Please turn to Revelation 21. Again, scripture with scripture. We've seen the Apostle Paul on this subject. We've seen the Lord Jesus on this subject. What does the Apostle John say about this subject? Revelation, please, 21, and look at verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is a second death. Sorcery, clairvoyance, mediums, praying to dead people. The Bible says it's wicked, and if you don't repent of it, into the lake of fire you go, which is a second death, which lasts forever. Liars, idolaters, whoremongers, people that sleep around, the fearful and the unbelieving are all abominable in the eyes of the Lord. If you're found in here, Revelation 21, or if you are found in Romans chapter 1, or if you are found in Matthew 15, you are in trouble. You need to repent, and you need a saviour to save you from your sins. So as we were concluding from chapter 1, I gave you a very quick footnote, really, with some additional information about how the Lord sees sin and what he's going to do with sin. And uh, part of Romans chapter 1 was not only man's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but how it was foretold that mankind would not only reject the Lord Jesus Christ, but how he would also hate the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, man knows who Jesus Christ is. You can go anywhere in the world and speak to anyone at any given time about any particular subject. And for the most part, it doesn't cause any controversy but the moment you mention the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes. Please turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. 
And he wrote this book 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. In reference to the Lord Jesus Christ written, as I say, 700 years BC. Found in the Old Testament written by the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 14. As many were stoned at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Verse 14 is clearly in reference to the crucifixion. And did you know that the word crucifixion was created to try and explain the pain and suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ went through? When people say it was excruciating, please think about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. How the God of the universe hung on a cross, naked for six hours. They crucified him. The Assyrians started this brutal form of capital punishment, but the Romans affected it to a T. Look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. 13 and 14 is primarily in reference to the first coming. Verse 15 is in reference to the second coming. More on that on another video. Please turn to chapter 53, Scripture with Scripture. We are still in the book of Isaiah. And uh, like I say, mankind doesn't only reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind perpetually hates the Lord Jesus Christ. When you watch television, you hear, oh my, and they say God. Or Jesus, and they say Christ. That's blasphemy. I've been all over the world and I've heard people blaspheme God. Isn't that amazing? Foretold 700 years BC and prophecy is being fulfilled every single day of the week. Hollywood are guilty of it. All of the media around the world are guilty of it. And the UK is no exception, I might add. Isaiah 53, look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In reference primarily to the apostles running away at the cross, only the women stayed faithful to him. But that part from verse 3 which says, He is despised, present tense, and rejected of men. Everybody, before they were saved, rejected him, despised him. Foretold, one more time, 700 years BC, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bore the sins of the world on his body. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everyone has sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 10 makes it very clear that the Lord God, Elohim, was pleased to bruise him. Please turn to Genesis chapter 3. One more scripture to explain this theme of mine and prophecy found in scripture concerning the man, Christ Jesus. Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 15. 
And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In reference to Satan and the Messiah, of course, foretold thousands of years before his arrival on the earth. And yet we see from Isaiah 53 how it pleased the Lord to bruise him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, he made a soul an offering for sin. Incredible. So put all these scriptures together and you find a man sent to earth from eternity past to die for the sins of the world. A man that was despised and rejected of men. Go anywhere in the world, speak to anyone about any particular person, and for the most part, it's going to be okay. But mention the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything changes. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. It's a heart problem, not a head problem. But next up, we'll look at chapter 2 from the book of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Chapter 2 verse 1 is a fulfilment of chapter 1 verse 32, where the Lord makes it very clear that unsaved people that have rejected him not only continue in their rebellion against him, but they know that judgment is coming as well. And Paul says in chapter 2 verse 1, You are inexcusable, O man, because you judge someone else for the same sins that you are committing yourself. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Meaning don't rebuke somebody else, or don't judge somebody else for a particular sin, if you are committing the same sin yourself. That is hypocrisy, and the Lord hates it. Verse 2, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Of course not. If you are judging person A for committing this sin or that sin, and you are doing it yourself, you have also just condemned yourself. Because by condemning somebody else for the same sin that you are committing, you realise that it is sinful, and you have just clearly judged yourself. We are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour, as a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com Or you can write to us at ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL1 1LD, England. That's ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL1 1LD, England.
Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse-by-verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry, reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.excatholicsforchrist.com. That's excatholicsforchrist.com. So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Chapter 2 verse 1 is a fulfilment of chapter 1 verse 32, where the Lord makes it very clear that unsaved people that have rejected him not only continue in their rebellion against him, but they know that judgment is coming as well. And Paul says in chapter 2 verse 1, You are inexcusable, O man, because you judge someone else for the same sins that you are committing yourself. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Meaning don't rebuke somebody else, or don't judge somebody else for a particular sin, if you are committing the same sin yourself. That is hypocrisy, and the Lord hates it. Verse 2, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Of course not. If you are judging person A for committing this sin or that sin, and you are doing it yourself, you have also just condemned yourself because by condemning somebody else for the same sin that you are committing you realize that it is sinful and you have just clearly judged yourself so if you are going to judge another party for whatever sin it may be make sure you are not practicing the same sin yourself this hypocrisy is found very clearly in the gospels And in John chapter 8, the Pharisees discovered a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they brought her unto the Lord, wanting his permission to stone her. And the Lord Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not, found in verse 6. These self-righteous Pharisees were baiting for blood. And yes, the Mosaic law called for death to anyone caught in the act of adultery, bestiality, fornication, homosexuality, and other sins of the flesh. And some commentators over the years have suggested that he has just written their names in the sand, and next to their names, the sins that they too were guilty of. And no doubt adultery was one of them. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth. Look at verse 9. And when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, 
went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the mist. Go back to Romans chapter 2, please. So the scripture does uphold judgment, but not hypocritical judgment. Righteous, holy, and non-hypocritical judgment. A saved person, therefore, can most certainly judge an unsaved person, but only if they are free from that particular sin that they are judging. So moving on through chapter 2 of the epistle to the Romans, and we saw very clearly from verses 1, 2, and 3, how those that condemn others have just condemned themselves, because they are guilty of the same sin that they are judging others of. And the Lord condemned that from Matthew chapter 7. And here Paul is simply reaffirming the Lord Jesus' teachings on this subject. Don't be a hypocrite when it comes to judging somebody else. Put your own house in order first before you judge someone else. So let's start today's broadcast in verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. I've been a Bible-believing Christian for 11 years now, and before I got saved, I could have died on many different occasions due to stupid things that I did in my youth, and I was a hypocrite, I was a sinner of all sinners, and I could so easily have died and gone to hell due to my sins. And Paul says here, don't you know, and why do you despise the goodness of God's long-suffering and his forbearance? Don't you know that the Lord is long-suffering and his patience allows you to be saved? He waited for many years until I got saved. His long-suffering completely transformed my life. I should have died many times over, like I say, and I deserved to go to hell for all of my sins. But praise be to God, he saved me, and his goodness, and his forbearance, and his long-suffering resulted in this sinner getting saved over 11 years ago. Paul is really slamming the self-righteous Pharisee, the so-called super-duper Christian, the holier-than-thou character, the type of person who can always see errors and flaws in other people, but when it comes to himself, he thinks he is perfect. He thinks he is so self-righteous, like the Pharisees found back in the Gospels, the reverent fathers, the scholars, the brains. And Jesus condemned those people as serpents and vipers and full of iniquity and hypocrisy. So if you are still living and breathing and existing on this earth, maybe the Lord has a plan for you. Maybe he still wants you to be saved. But you have to come to him in order to be saved. He won't reveal himself to you if there is sin in your life. But if you want to be saved, get on your knees and call on his name. Because it is his will for you to be saved. So moving on through the epistle to the Romans. And we are very much still in chapter 2. And we read from the previous broadcast how the Lord's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering does leave sinners 
to repentance. It worked for me, and it can work for you, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 5. But after thy hardness, an impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile, but glory, honour, and peace, to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Verse 11 should be underlined in your Bible. There is no respect of persons with the Lord. You are either saved, or you are not saved. He judged his own people, due to their sin. Moses, Miriam, and Aaron did not go into the promised land due to their sin. He still loved them, but due to their sin, they did not go into the promised land. You cannot bribe the Lord. If there is sin in your life and you don't deal with it, he will deal with you. So for those that continue on in their sin, found also back in chapter 1, from verses 18 down to 32, and here reaffirmed from verses 5 down to 10, you will get yours. You may enjoy your sin for a while, you may be very popular with your peers, but one day you will die and you will stand in the presence of Almighty God, and he will judge you according to what the Bible says. If you've lied, you are a liar. If you've stolen, you are a thief. If you've lusted after a woman, you are an adulterer. And if you have hated somebody, the Bible says you are a murderer. He will judge your heart and he will judge your thought life. Never mind your works. They get judged too. But he will judge your heart and he will judge your thought life as well. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And at the same time, he also holds out the hand of friendship and fellowship to those that continue on in well-doing, who seek glory and honour, immortality, eternal life, that obey the truth and love righteousness. But verse 9 says, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. You can't escape the judgment of God. If you die without Jesus Christ, you will go to hell for all of eternity. Pure and simple, but that's not his will for you. So we are still in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, and we aren't even halfway through this magnificent masterpiece of the Apostle Paul. If you are saved, this epistle should be of great comfort to you. But if you are not saved, this epistle is very much against you. You are either for the Lord or you are against the Lord. There is no middle ground. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. 
For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Chapter 1 he says, my God. Chapter 2 he says, my gospel. But go back to verse 12 please. There are many people that are sinning outside of the law. The law being the Ten Commandments of course. And those people are going to perish outside of the law. The law points you to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law shows you you are a sinner in need of a saviour. If you take the law away from mankind, you cause chaos and mayhem. Yes, they have a conscience which convicts them when they sin, found in verse 15. But the law nevertheless came from the Lord to point mankind to him. Also from verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, And many that have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Meaning the Jews, of course. Never forget that the Ten Commandments were given primarily to the children of Israel, not the Gentile nations, but they are still going to be judged by the standards of the Lord, not the standards of the land. Verse 13, Paul says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And some people say, well, you have to keep the law in order to be saved. Please turn to chapter 3. Look at verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law. Faith alone. You saw it in chapter 1, verse 16. It is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Faith alone. Believing. The just shall live by faith. So what does it mean to be a doer of the law? Please turn to Matthew chapter 22. Again, scripture with Scripture, Matthew 22, look at verse 37, please. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. To love the Lord your God with all your mind with all your heart and with all your soul, comes after you have been born again. And once you love the Lord your God, with all your mind, heart, soul and strength, you are then expected to love your neighbour as yourself. Please turn to Romans chapter 13. Look at verse 8. Owe no man anything, but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbour as thyself, means you have kept and fulfilled the law. But keeping the Ten Commandments does not save you. Once you are saved and you walk in the Spirit, you can do anything. But Jesus has enabled you to do those things because you are born again. Not in order to be born again, but because you are already born again. So during the last broadcast, we looked at verses 12 down to 16. And Paul says, in the day when God 
shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. That day found in verse 16 is the great white throne. And if you die without the Lord Jesus Christ, he, the Lord Jesus, is going to judge you at the great white throne judgment. You won't escape his judgment. He will judge your heart, and he will judge your thoughts, and he will also judge your deeds. But at the same time, we saw from cross-references how keeping the law does not save us. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, For the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, like stealing, like murdering, like committing fornication or adultery. The Ten Commandments were given to the Jews, and apart from the Sabbath, which has no direct reference to us, the Gentiles, the rest of the Ten Commandments are still applicable. God will judge you by the Ten Commandments. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, it is immaterial. He will still judge you the same way. And Paul says, these Gentiles are a law unto themselves. How true that is. If you were to go back to the 1930s and look at Nazi Germany, you would have seen all sorts of laws being introduced which were abhorrent. They were wicked. They were evil. These Gentiles were a law unto themselves. They tried to create their own morality. They passed laws which made it legal to kill Jews and gypsies and Christians and anyone who opposed what they stood for. And verse 14 really does bring it home to me that these Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law and they become a law unto themselves. How true that is. So verse 14 makes it very clear as to what happens when those that live outside of the law and yet are doing things in the law become a law unto themselves. We saw it back in the 1930s and 40s in Nazi Germany and we saw it back in the Soviet Union under the communist regime. They passed laws as well. They did tests on their own people which were ruthless. Why? Because they were unsaved Gentiles doing things which were contained in the law and once again they became a law unto themselves. And verse 15, Paul says it very clearly, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and the thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. It goes back to Romans chapter 1 verse 32. These people know what they are doing is wrong, and they know that judgment is coming, and yet they continue on in their sin, totally regardless, totally indifferent. What more can the Lord God of the Bible do? He's given man a conscience, he's given man a creation, and he's given mankind the Bible. What more can he do? And one more time from verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Every thought, every deed, every action he has seen, he has noted, and he is going to judge you for it unless you repent now and believe on his son. Otherwise, you will stand completely naked at the great white throne, and he will judge you like a forensic lawyer would do. And he will go through every aspect of your life in fine detail. So choose you this day what you are going to do. Are you going to bend the knee and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you going to snub him 
and embrace sin even more. The ball, therefore, is very much in your court. So we are nearing the end of chapter 2 of the Epistle to the Romans. And uh, during the last broadcast, we saw very clearly as to what happens when man turns from the Lord and creates his own truth, when he creates his own reality. And the consequences are always deadly for those that are living under such systems. And like I said last time, even if we had no Bibles, we still have a conscience which comes from heaven, and we have a creation which always points back to a creator. So mankind, according to verse 16, is without excuse. It's as simple as that. Look at verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Paul has gone from focusing on atheists and agnostics and all non-theists to some extent, and now he is going to focus his attention on the Jews. Because Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a scholar of the scholars. And here he's going to zoom in to the average Jewish man or woman who's trusting ultimately in his knowledge of the law and not in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at verse 21, please. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? It goes back to Matthew chapter 7. Don't judge somebody for doing the same thing that you are doing. This is common sense. This is primitive teaching. And yet Paul has to say it because the Pharisees were the masters of being holier than thou. Hypocrites with a capital H. And God said, you people are worthy of hellfire because you aren't saved and you are preaching this self-righteous message which nobody can keep. Only my son kept the law perfectly. And therefore you are going to hell and your disciples and your converts are going to hell as well. In verse 21 he says, You therefore which teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do as I say, not as I do. These people say don't steal, but are they stealing? They go on to say don't commit adultery, but are they committing adultery? Go back to John chapter 8 and read it again. 22 also says they abhor idols. And yet Paul says, do you commit sacrilege? An idol can be absolutely anything. Your mind can be an idol. Which feeds back into verse 20. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of babes. Which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. They love to learn. They love knowledge. They love to speak. They love to debate. They are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we have finally arrived at the end of chapter 2. And uh, thank you for bearing with me. This epistle is very deep and uh, it's very rich. And it's very unapologetic as well. Like I say, 
If you're for the Lord, this epistle should give you great comfort. But if you are against the Lord, this epistle is very much against you. Let's conclude this broadcast and this chapter in verse 23. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonourest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfil the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Verse 24 is very interesting, because Paul says how the name of God is blasphemed by the Gentiles, when they see hypocritical, self-righteous Jews living after the flesh, saying one thing, but doing another. And again, God is very much against that. This whole theme of circumcision, in a nutshell, means nothing. For those living under the new covenant, it doesn't make any difference if you are circumcised or not. Your heart is the issue, not your body per se. And of course, when I refer to your heart, I don't mean your literal heart, but your spiritual heart, which has been born again. You got a new heart when you were born again. And verse 17 also ties in quite nicely with verses 23 down to 29. These were Jews which were resting in the law and offering some kind of outward worship to the Lord. But the hearts were dead. They were like the Pharisees. They were far from the one true God. They gave him lip service. They may have been Jews. They may have been circumcised. They may have even been teachers. But unless their hearts were circumcised, they were just as lost as a typical Gentile. And verse 29, one more time to conclude chapter 2. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He loves God, not men. His heart, as I say, has been spiritually circumcised, and now he is a true Jew. He is now a true man or woman of God. If you are a Gentile, Bible-believing Christian, you are a spiritual Jew. But one more time, it's a heart issue, not a head issue. Chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul starts chapter 3 verse 1 asking the almost rhetorical question, Is there any point in being a Jew? Is there any point in being circumcised? He made it very clear from chapter 2, verses 27, 28 and 29, that only a person whose heart has been circumcised is qualified to be called a Jew. Physical circumcision was all very well, but if the heart of the Jew was not circumcised, it was pointless to be circumcised. Look at verse 2. Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God the Old Testament, the Jews were chosen to be the Lord's people, 
they were chosen to represent him. They were chosen to be his vehicle to bring the Gentiles unto him. Please turn to the book of Esther. Please look at chapter 8, verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Mordecai was a Jew, and here the Gentiles from the city of Shushan are rejoicing and are glad at Mordecai, who's been elevated in the kingdom of the Gentiles, but more specific, the people of Persia. Look at verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness. We are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior as a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www xcatholicsforchrist.com that's xcatholicsforchrist.com or you can write to us at ETC Ministry Care of Pennywise 15A St. Andrew's Court Bolton BL1 1LD England that's ETC Ministry Care of Pennywise 15A St. Andrew's Court Bolton BL1 1LD England From Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse by verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.xcatholicsforchrist.com That's xcatholicsforchrist.com So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans. And verse 29, one more time, to conclude chapter 2. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He loves God, not man. His heart, as I say, has been spiritually circumcised, and now he is a true Jew. He is now a true man or woman of God. If you are a Gentile, Bible-believing Christian, you are a spiritual Jew. But one more time, it's a heart issue, not a head issue. Chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul starts chapter 3, verse 1, asking the almost rhetorical question, Is there any point in being a Jew? Is there any point in being circumcised? He made it very clear from chapter 2, verses 27, 28 and 29, that only a person whose heart has been circumcised is qualified 
to be called a Jew. Physical circumcision was all very well, but if the heart of the Jew was not circumcised, it was pointless to be circumcised. Look at verse 2. Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Old Testament, the Jews were chosen to be the Lord's people. They were chosen to represent him. They were chosen to be his vehicle to bring the Gentiles unto him. Please turn to the book of Esther. Please look at chapter 8, verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Mordecai was a Jew, and here the Gentiles from the city of Shushan are rejoicing and are glad at Mordecai, who's been elevated in the kingdom of the Gentiles, but more specific, the people of Persia. Look at verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. The church should be able to do this. These pagan Gentiles became Jews due to the testimony of the Jewish people, who experienced gladness, joy and honour. The Jews were chosen by the Lord to be a vehicle to the Gentiles, but they failed on a mass scale. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God's love for the Jews is unconditional, and although they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, and in fact they rejected most of the Old Testament prophets, nevertheless, for the sake of their fathers, the Lord still loves Israel. It makes no difference whether a Jew is walking with the Lord or not. They are still the apple of his eye. But for now, we, the church, are the true people of God. The Jews fell, according to Romans chapter 11, through unbelief. And during this dispensation of the new covenant, we the Gentiles, we the church people, have been grafted in to represent the Lord God of the Bible. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see very clearly from chapter 7, verse 7, how the Lord chose Israel, which were the least of all the nations, to become his people. And from them came kings. And from all of the kings came the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So last time we saw the Apostle Paul trying to deal with the question that the Jews would have been asking him, is there any point in being a Jew anymore? Is there any point in being circumcised? And I showed you some references from the Old Testament as to how the Lord dealt with Israel and why he chose Israel to be his people. And we also saw from the book of Esther how the Jews were able to bring the Gentiles to God through their testimony. Look at verse 3, please. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. 
Paul has to deal with the reality that the people of Israel, for the most part, did not receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, they put him to death. This, of course, was foretold in the Old Testament. The scriptures found in verse 2, the oracles of God. In fact, the Jews put most of their prophets to death and didn't believe in what they told them. So when Jesus Christ came, it wasn't any surprise that they would also reject him and crucify him. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous, who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet? Am I also judged as a sinner, and not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. Verse 8, first of all, and here the Apostle Paul is condemning those slanderers. And we have it today, those of us that hold to eternal security, we too are accused unfairly of giving people a license to sin. Because we are saved, because all of our past, present and future sins have been forgiven, that does not allow us to live in sin. That doesn't allow us to rebel against God. And here Paul is trying to build on the main theme of Romans. How God is holy and all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, are wicked, are sinful and very much in need of a saviour. This theme of mankind needing a mediator between man and God is nothing new. It's found throughout the entire Bible. But look at Job chapter 9. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Look at verse 2. I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? What a brilliant question. How can man be just with God? Answer, he can't. Unless somebody steps in to the equation and makes him just that person, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, written by Moses around 1500 BC. And Job lived many years, even before the patriarchs arrived on the scene. And this question has been asked over the centuries by philosophers and religious people. How should man be just with God? Answer, Jesus Christ. We saw from verses 1 to 8, how the Apostle Paul made it very clear that circumcision and keeping the law weren't really the issues that the Lord was concerned about. He wanted Jews to be circumcised in their hearts, a spiritual circumcision which comes, of course, at the new birth. Until a Jew was circumcised in his heart, he wasn't a true Jew, according to chapter 2, verses 27 to 29. This was a very thorny issue, This was a very painful issue. And once the temple had been destroyed, the Jews went into meltdown. What do we do? What is happening? And you can only hope that those Jews living around 70 AD would have read the epistle to the Romans. It's all in here as to what God would have expected of Jews to do if they wanted to be right with him. So let's start today's broadcast in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 9, he says, We, meaning all of the apostles, have before proved how all Jews and all Gentiles are all under sin, without exception. He goes on to quote Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And these verses should be read in conjunction with chapter 1, verses 18 down to 32. When man turns from God, God turns from man. Look at Genesis chapter 6, when the Lord flooded the earth due to immorality. Look at Genesis chapter 19, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. From Genesis chapter 6, everybody was drowned, except one family. From Genesis chapter 19, everybody in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, apart from one man and his two daughters. So verses 9 down to 18 should be read very carefully. Mankind in his pre-salvation state is a wicked, despicable, depraved sinner who is worthy of death, according to chapter 1, verse 32. But God sent Jesus to come to earth to die for the sins of the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So moving through chapter 3 of the epistle to the Romans, and last time we saw very clearly how Jew or Gentile, male or female, it makes no difference, all are equally guilty in the eyes of the Lord God of the Bible. So let's start today's broadcast in verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. When you stand at the great white throne judgment, if you are not saved, your mouth will be stopped. You will be speechless. You will stand in the presence of Almighty God, being in the person of Jesus Christ, and you will be naked. Every thought, word, and deed will be judged. Your sins, which may have been secret, are now going to be made public. The Lord God of the Bible is going to judge every thought, word and deed. And he will find you guilty because nobody made you sin those sins that you committed. And a guilty verdict will send you to the lake of fire for all of eternity. Look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is a knowledge of sin. Chapter 2, verses 12, 13, 14 and 15 made it very clear that universally mankind knows there is a creator and his conscience bears record to the creator of the universe. When he sins, he knows that he has done wrong. So he is without excuse. But two things in verse 20, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, meaning if you could keep the Ten Commandments, it wouldn't save you anyway. And by the presence of the law is the knowledge of sin. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. These things all point to Almighty God. 
He is the judge. He sets the rules. He sets the perimeters. And those Ten Commandments point you back to the Lord. Therefore you are without excuse. Verse 19, that all the world may become guilty before God. You may have escaped this travesty. You may have been able to keep this sin secret. But one day everything is going to be brought out into the open. Okay, so concluding chapter 3 of the epistle to the Romans. And last time we saw very clearly and unequivocally how Jews and Gentiles are not going to escape the judgment of God. It makes no difference whether these people are saved or not. Everybody is going to be judged. For a saved person, they are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And for an unsaved person, they are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. It makes no difference, like I say, the Lord is no respecter of persons. Let's start today's broadcast in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. From 21 down to 26, the Apostle Paul was on a roll. 23, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we continue to come short of the glory of God, even if we are saved, I might add. 24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is God's unmerited favour. It's a free gift. The just shall live by faith. 26, he says, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Once again, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. True remorse for your sins, and real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Saviour and Lord. He died on the cross in your place. He was a propitiation for your sins and for my sins. Just one quick footnote, if I may, from verse 25. Yes, God sent Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins and how it pleased God for him to offer himself for the sins of the world. Please turn quickly in your Bibles to Isaiah 53 and I'll close this broadcast in verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors written 700 years bc very much in reference to the death burial and resurrection of the lord jesus christ he made a propitiation for the sins of the world he has made a provision for everybody to be saved but only those that appropriate the atonement, meaning only those that believe on him with true and real faith, are going to be saved. All others, therefore, will die in their sins and go to hell forever. Not God's choice, but that is as a result of the free will of man. Heaven or hell, the choice is yours. We found it very clearly defined in the latter verses of chapter 3, 
how God has made it possible to reconcile the world unto himself. And verse 27, one more time, the Apostle Paul says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Your good works are not going to save you. All of these self-righteous Jews that were keeping the law, that had been circumcised, that had been custodians of the oracles of God, are still going to fall short of the glory of God. Gentiles, which are a law unto themselves, have also fallen short of the glory of God. The law won't save you, and works won't save you. Look at 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Keeping the Ten Commandments, even if you could, won't save you. Chapter 1, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Chapter 3, verse 20. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It couldn't be any clearer. But some people fail to understand this. And they add wicked works to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you are saved, you can do good works. And the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 2 says, We have been saved unto good works. The works come after we are saved. But the works in and of themselves don't save us. Pure and simple. 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith, and uncircumcision through faith. Two points from verse 30. Those Jews that had been physically circumcised, and had gone on to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, like Peter, Paul and John, and Andrew, and James, and all of the other apostles, were saved by their faith, period. And those Gentiles, which were not circumcised, and are not going to be circumcised, but have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will be saved by faith in the Messiah. One more time, the just shall live by faith. 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Chapter 4. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? I'm going to call chapter 4 the faith chapter, sola fide. We saw very clearly from chapter 3, verse 20, how by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. And we saw very clearly from verse 28, how a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And here the Apostle Paul is going to go back to the Old Testament and look at how Abraham, the father of all nations, got saved. And we also discovered from chapter 2, verses 27 down to 29, how the Lord expected more than just a head knowledge of him. Being a Jew through circumcision, going to the synagogue or going to the temple, as they did back in here, 56 AD, was all very well. But Jesus said back in John chapter 4, that a time was coming when those that wanted to worship the Lord would have to do so in truth and in spirit. Being an outward Jew wouldn't save you, it never did save you. Being a Jew, keeping the rituals, going to the temple, so on and so forth, showed you that you needed to be saved. For the scripture said, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look at verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, 
he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. If works could save you, Abraham would win hands down. He was called when he was 75 years old to follow the Lord. By the time he made 99, Isaac was born. He believed on the Lord that he would have a son, and from his son many nations would be blessed. Verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The scripture, the oracles of God, the Jewish Tanakh. Please turn to Genesis chapter 15. Scripture with scripture. Let's start in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Look at verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. The just shall live by faith. God says to Abraham, Do you believe that from Isaac your seed shall be blessed? And Abraham says, Yes, Lord, I believe. And the Lord said, Fine, you are now saved. Look at chapter 12, please. Verse 1. Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. One more scripture, please turn to chapter 17 of Genesis. Look at verse 23. And Abraham took Isaac his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God has said unto him. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed on the Lord and got saved. In Genesis 17, he circumcised all of the men in his house. Now, if you want to spiritualize that to somebody living today, this is how you could do it. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls man to believe on him, which would be a general call to repentance. Genesis chapter 15, the Lord says to the sinner, do you believe on my son as your saviour? And the sinner says, yes. And the Lord says, you are now saved. And by Genesis chapter 17, the saved sinner has now got baptised. And all of his house, if they are also of age and have also believed on the Lord, get baptised as well. But ultimately, what is important is how that person got saved. Faith in the one true God. Sola fide. Faith alone. So during the last broadcast, we looked at Genesis 12, 15 and 17. And we saw how Abraham got saved. Paul is building on his case how sinners have always been saved the same way. Through faith alone. Chapter 3 verses 20 and 28 made it very clear from the book of Romans how a man is justified meaning exonerated by faith without the deeds of the law. Please turn to Philippians chapter 3. Let's start in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss 
for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul was a Jew of the Jews, and here he makes it very clear how he was prepared to lose everything in order to win Christ Jesus, to be conformable unto his death. And he says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, meaning my good works, my Jewish rituals, my circumcision, my good works, this and that. No, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. One more time, the just shall live by faith. Verse 10 and 11, he speaks about wanting to know the power of the resurrection and to be identified with the fellowship and the sufferings of the Saviour. That's glorification. When a man gets saved, he is justified, which means he has been exonerated from all of his past, present and future sins. Once that happens, the Lord sanctifies you, which means he puts you apart. We saw that word in chapter 1, verse 1. But sanctification is also an ongoing process where the Lord grows you from within and he matures you. And here Paul, saved about 35 years, hasn't quite made it to perfection. And you won't make it to perfection in this lifetime either, I might add. Look at verse 12, please. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. That's glorification. That comes after a man dies. When a person gets saved, they are positionally perfect in the eyes of the Lord. But their daily standing with the Lord can and does fluctuate. Found very clearly here in verse 12. He wasn't yet perfect. And neither are you and neither am I. But he got saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ without the deeds of the law. Not having his own righteousness, but that which comes through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Please go back to Romans chapter 4. So we are still very much in the early verses of chapter 4. Paul made it very... We are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour, As a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com Or you can write to us at ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL11LD, England. That's ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, 
BL1 1LD England. From Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse-by-verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry, reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans, chapter 4, verse 16. So we are now halfway through chapter 4 of the Epistle to the Romans. And I showed you during the last broadcast how it was always the will of the Lord to save Jew and Gentile by faith alone. Pure and simple. The will of God was found clearly in John chapter 6 to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not rocket science, it's very simple. And yet this was a huge problem for the Jews because Paul was writing to the Gentiles in Rome while the temple was still in existence. And there were also saved Jews living in Rome who must also have been wondering what was going to happen to the Jews. The Messiah has been and gone and for the most part Israel has not believed on him. Hence why Paul needed to write Romans and also why there was a need to write the epistle to the Hebrews. Has God finished with his people? Chapter 11 gives us the answer. But for today, let's continue on, please, in verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham is the father of the Jew, and also of the Gentile. Abraham got saved by faith alone. Isaac got saved by faith alone. There is no boasting here. When Abraham died and stood in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not say, I am here because I was a good man, And I did A, B, and C. When David died and entered into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't say, I am here because I was a good man who did A, B, and C. No. Abraham was saved without the deeds of the law. David was saved without the deeds of the law. You got saved without the deeds of the law. I got saved without the deeds of the law. Verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, 
but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. So verses 18 down to 25 prove conclusively how Abraham was saved by believing in the Lord. He was an old man, his wife was an old woman, and yet they both conceived Isaac as a result of the Lord's promise. It was a supernatural event, done deliberately to show man that he cannot save himself in and of himself. And Paul says in verse 23, one more time, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. It can't be any clearer than this. If we believe on God who raised up Jesus from the dead, we are saved. We are justified. We are exonerated. No works involved. Paul has demonstrated and proved tirelessly and conclusively how Abraham was justified. So before I conclude this broadcast, I want to show you how the Apostle Paul got saved. He's quoted Abraham, he's quoted David, but how did he get saved? Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 5, please. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Look at verse 17. And Ananias went his way, and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says to the Lord, What will you have me to do for you? I'm yours. He's been justified. Verse 17, Ananias is sent to Paul, and before he even baptizes Paul, he says, Brother, soul. Paul has already been saved and justified. And by 18, he has been baptized. He got saved by faith in the Lord alone. Genesis chapter 15 for Abraham, Acts chapter 9 for the apostle Paul. Acts 9 verse 4, Paul has been called to repent. Genesis chapter 12 verses 1, 2 and 3, Abraham has been called to repent. Acts 9 verse 18, Paul has now been baptised. Genesis chapter 17, Abraham was circumcised. The parallels therefore are clear to see. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And one last and final time, faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. So just before we get to chapter 5, I wanted to spend some time today 
looking at Romans chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul makes it very clear how man is justified without the deeds of the law, whereas in James chapter 2, we are told that a sinner is saved by works and faith. And for many people, this causes great confusion. And it's quite understandable, but a little Bible study will hopefully, Lord willing, explain how Paul and James are both saying the same thing, but in different ways. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's a very clear statement. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. But look at James chapter 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith, and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers, and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Verse 21 is the key to understanding the whole of James chapter 2. When Abraham went to offer up Isaac his son, Isaac his son, and the servants of Abraham saw what he was going to do. Abraham was saved before this event took place, but he was justified in the presence of Isaac and his servants. They saw his true faith found in 15 and 16. A brother or sister is hungry and naked and they want to have food, they need to be clothed. And a person who is saved demonstrates they are saved by doing good works. And Abraham is the definitive example of how a man gets saved and what he does once he is saved. He produces good works, of course. Please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Scripture with scripture. Let's start in verse 6. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So Romans 4 and James 2 are very easily reconcilable when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord sees the heart of the penitent sinner, first of all, found in Romans chapter 4, and that man or that woman gets saved by believing on the Lord. Once a man is saved, he produces good works. 
Now his peers see his faith, because his faith is demonstrated by good works. James chapter 2, of course. So the Lord looks at the heart of man, Romans chapter 4, whereas man looks at the works of man, James chapter 2. Two scriptures, both teaching the same thing, but in different ways. James is focusing on the works of a saved sinner, whereas Paul is focusing on a believer getting saved in the first place. Once you are saved, good works will follow, but you are not saved by your faith and your works. You are saved without the deeds of the law. Chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Chapter 5 verse 1 is a continuation from chapter 4, which I called the faith chapter. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. David believed, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Chapter 5 verse 1, being justified by faith, simply means you've been exonerated, you've been pardoned. You should go to hell when you die because you have sinned, but the Lord made it possible to pardon all those sinners that believe on his Son. To have peace with God was unheard of in the Old Testament. If you wanted to be at peace with the Lord, you had to go to the temple, you had to offer up sacrifices, and the priest most of the time was your mediator. But now we go straight to the Father via the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything changed at Calvary, everything changed by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. P-E-A-C-E. Peace. Bible Christianity is the only faith in the world that guarantees eternal life the moment a sinner believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is promised to you. It is guaranteed for you. It is in writing that you have been exonerated. No other faith, like I say, can guarantee this. Verse 3. And not only so... But we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Timothy was ashamed of the Lord, and eventually he got over that. In fact, he was martyred eventually for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This term for being ashamed can also be in reference to your past sins. Most people that come to the Lord Jesus Christ have some history, meaning they lived in the world for X amount of years and they committed X amount of sins. That shame is always there, but by the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all been done away with. You've been pardoned. Tribulations also found in verse 3 are in reference to trials. If you are saved, you are going to go through trials and tribulations. A, to test your faith, and B, to make you grow in grace, so you can be an example and an encouragement to other people. Please turn to Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. If you are, say, brother or sister in the Lord, and you are always going through trials and tribulations, and you know of other people that claim to be saved, but their life seem to be perfect, they seem to be pretty happy and content in what they are doing, then it's quite possible they are the wicked. They are the tares. They are the goats. Because if you are righteous, he is going to try you. John 15, the Lord said he would prune those that were his. Please turn back to Romans chapter 5. And also from verse 5, the term hope is not a blind hope. Our faith is substantiated. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the word of God. We have true faith, we have real hope in a person that lived 2,000 years ago, in a person that conquered death. So the overwhelming consensus from verses 3, 4 and 5 would be this. Once you are saved, trials and tribulations are going to come. And by those trials and tribulations, A, the Lord can humble you, and B, he can make you more aware of your brethren around the world. You can relate to their problems, and you can be a great comfort to them. But ultimately, from verse 5, you'll be content, you'll be equipped to do all things for him. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. Amazing. So moving on through chapter 5, and last time we saw how the man or woman of the Lord has now been justified freely by faith. And once they've been exonerated, once they've been pardoned, they now enjoy peace. Something which was unprecedented pre-4 BC, when the Messiah was born. Something that was unheard of pre-30 AD, when the Lord hung on the cross. Mankind, pre the arrival of the Messiah, never quite knew if they were saved or not. They did their best to please the Lord, and they kept the law the best way they knew how. But they were never sure of salvation. But now, in the new covenant, we have access to the Father via the Lord Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed, it's promised, and we have it here in the word of God. Look at verse 6, please. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Please turn to Psalm chapter 10. Look at verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Man doesn't want the Lord. Man is at enmity with the Lord. Please turn back to Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 6 one more time. For when we, that's you and I, were yet without strength, meaning we were dead in our sins, we were the wicked found in Psalm chapter 10, in due time, 30 AD, he's hanging on the cross, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the whole world. Mankind. You and I. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. That's very true. It's very rare for person A to die for person B. It has happened, but it's very rare. Yet Christ Jesus despised the shame. The king of the universe came down from heaven and left his palace behind. And he was crucified for the sins of the world. Found in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 down to 32. Every possible sin imaginable he has atoned for. He was without sin. And by his death on the cross and our personal faith in him, we can be saved. Look at verse 8, please. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 6, we are called ungodly, and in verse 8, we are called sinners. Please turn to Psalm chapter 14. Look at verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Chapter 10, verse 4, you are called wicked. And chapter 14, verse 1, you are called a fool. Please go back to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. These people are worthy of death. Please turn back to chapter 5. 
Verse 8, one more time. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, wicked, fools, worthy of death, Christ died for us. He is the bridge between God and man. So you have two options. You either accept him and believe on him and trust in him as your saviour, or you reject him and you face him as your judge at the end of the world. The choice is yours. The Lord is a gentleman. He won't force himself on you. But verse 8, one more time. But God commendeth his love toward us. All of us. In that while we were yet sinners, dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He loves you so much that he hung on a cross for six long, painful hours. But you have a free will. You either believe on him or you do not. The ball is in your court. So let's start today's broadcast in verse 9. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Some teachers believe this is in reference to escaping the tribulation. It may be, but ultimately I'm more of the opinion that this is in reference to escaping the judgment of God. Jesus has saved us from God, ultimately. Chapter 5, verse 1, the scripture says, being justified by faith. Faith in what? Found here in verse 9, faith in his blood, the precious blood of the Lamb. Please turn to Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 28, please. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Jesus is God, found here very clearly. He purchased the church with his own blood. Please turn to First Peter. Some years ago I was talking to a rabbi about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I took him to First Peter chapter 1, and I showed him verse 19, and the scripture says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And I said to this rabbi, we are saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he just looked at me. But it's a fact. We were saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, found here very clearly in First Peter, and found in Acts chapter 20 to be God's blood. Please turn back to Romans chapter 5. To be justified, which means to be exonerated, which means to be pardoned by his blood, found in verse 9, through him, proves once and for all that salvation is a free gift. You weren't justified by being baptised. You were justified by his blood. And you are going to be saved through him. He is a living saviour. He is alive today. He may have died on the cross, but the triune God resurrected him, and he is alive today. So verse 9 should be underlined in all of your Bibles. One more time, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We board the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our ark. He is the captain of our salvation. We are safe in him. He is our refuge. He is our high tower. But you have to believe on him, the just, 
shall live by faith. Verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Please turn back to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 20. For the invisible things of him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. It's like evolution here. They know him from the creation of the world, found in verse 20. They are without excuse from verse 21. 22, they profess to be wise, but they are fools. Psalm 14, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Found here in Romans chapter 1. And by 23, they have changed the glory of the uncorruptible, the beautiful, the holy, the righteous God, into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Evolution. They defile God's glory. They deny that God is God. They deny that God made everything. Please turn back to chapter 5, verse 10, one more time. For if, when we, that's you and I, were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, he's made it possible to save all of us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God has made a provision to save everyone. But you have to appropriate the atonement. The just shall live by faith. You have to call on the name of the Lord. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will save you in a flash. He died for the ungodly in verse 6. He died for sinners in verse 8. And he died for his enemies in verse 10. What more does he need to do? Please turn to Psalm chapter 7 and look at verse 11. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. We found tribulations and trials in Romans chapter 5 verse 3. And here, not only does he judge the righteous, the saved people, but he is angry with the wicked every day. Look at Psalm chapter 5 verse 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. You won't stand in his sight. You'll be on your face when he judges you as the judge of the universe. He hates all workers of iniquity. Look at Psalm 9 verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Please turn back to Romans chapter 5. Very quickly, he is either going to be your saviour or your judge. He has died for those people found in Psalm 7, 9, 10 and 14. But now he waits patiently as a saviour. He is long-suffering. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's conclude this broadcast, if we may, in verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Present tense. 
we have now received the atonement. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is done. It is finished. It has been accomplished. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Be ye reconciled unto him. And that is God's plan for man. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, so before I get to verse 12, I wanted to spend some time today looking at the atonement. I've shown you from previous broadcasts how man is universally depraved and how man will not seek the Lord. Not that he cannot seek the Lord, but that he chooses not to seek the Lord. At the same time, the Lord is holy, the Lord is righteous, the Lord is a perfectionist. He cannot lower his standard. Therefore, we have a dilemma. How can God be reconciled to man? And what exactly is the atonement? We are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com Or you can write to us at ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL1 1LD, England. That's ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL1 1LD, England. Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse-by-verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry, reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans, chapter 5, verse 12. Okay, so before I get to verse 12, I wanted to spend some time today looking at the atonement. I've shown you from previous broadcasts how man is universally depraved, and how man will not seek the Lord. Not that he cannot seek the Lord, but that he chooses not to seek the Lord. At the same time, the Lord is holy, the Lord is righteous, the Lord is a perfectionist. He cannot lower his standard. Therefore, we have a dilemma. How can God be reconciled to man? And what exactly is the atonement? For the Lord to lower his standard would mean the Lord is no longer the Lord. For unsaved people to enter into heaven upon death would mean something seriously wrong has occurred. What exactly, therefore, is the atonement? Please turn to Luke chapter 7. Let's start in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees, 
desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and to wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. This woman found in verse 37 is a sinner, but more precisely, she's a prostitute, and she plucks up the courage to enter the house of the Pharisee, with all of his cohorts. Can you imagine how hard that must have been for her? Before she walks into the room, she is already saved. Romans chapter 4, the Lord sees the heart of the penitent sinner, first and foremost. Then he justifies that sinner. And James chapter 2, man sees the works of a saved sinner. I showed you from 1 Samuel chapter 16, how the Lord looks in the heart, Romans chapter 4. Whereas man looks on the outward appearance, James chapter 2. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Two points from 39. The Pharisee says if the Lord was a prophet, he wouldn't allow this woman who is a sinner, meaning she was an immoral woman, to touch him. To touch a priest or to touch a prophet in the Old Testament was out. If you were unclean, you couldn't even look at the high priest. And yet here this woman, an immoral woman, has been able to touch the Lord. And this self-righteous Pharisee is incredulous. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. So this verse demonstrates the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deity. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? The wisdom here of the Lord Jesus Christ surpasses the wisdom of Solomon. And Simon must be aware that the Lord Jesus is referring to him and the woman. 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he, to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Her sins were great, her sins were many. As were his sins, he was a Pharisee, he was an upright member of the community. And the Lord says one more time, But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Simon was a self-righteous Pharisee, whereas this woman, on the other hand, was a humble sinner. These two couldn't have been further apart. Look at verse 48. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. He's the Lord of the temple. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's deity. Only God can forgive 
sins. Your sins are forgiven. The just shall live by faith. No works needed. 49. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Who is this man that can raise the dead? Who is this man that can still the waves, calm the storm, give sight to the blind? They didn't have a clue as to who he was. Who is this man that forgiveth sins also? And by this stage, he doesn't even respond to their questions. He knew what they were thinking. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. And he is omnipotent. But his focus here is on the lady. A saved sinner. And he concludes this in verse 50. And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. P-E-A-C-E. Peace. Found in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. So that, in a nutshell, is what the atonement is. She believed on the Lord, Romans chapter 4. She went into the Pharisee's house, and she demonstrated her faith in the Lord, which was seen among the Pharisees, and also from the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 2. She was justified by her works, in the presence of those present on that occasion. Abraham was saved, Romans chapter 4. And when he went to offer up Isaac his son, he was justified by his works in the presence of Isaac his son. So Romans 4 and James chapter 2 are completely in harmony with one another. But they are focusing on the atonement from two different perspectives. The just shall live by faith. So during the last broadcast we looked at the atonement. And we discovered just how magnificent, just how marvellous, just how loving the Lord God of the Bible really is. In your worst possible state, he died for your very sins. He knew before you were even born what sins you would have committed before you got saved and even after you got saved. And yet he still died for you nevertheless. So just rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have sin in your life, just confess it to him. And he, Christ Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins. So just rest in him. So let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Two points from verse 12. Adam's sin caused him to die spiritually. All men, Jew and Gentile, are therefore dead in their sins, until they are born again. So with all men being in their sins, all men need a saviour. Period. An original sin, for those that don't know, is the knowledge of good and evil. Mankind in general is a sinner. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is not a just man upon the face of the earth. Nobody is good but God. And two points from verse 13. Sin was in the world even before the law came. So nobody is going to escape God's judgment on sin. And also sin is not imputed when there is no law. We that are saved today are not under the law. We have been saved from the law. We have been saved from our sins. We have been saved from hell. We have been saved from God's wrath. We are not under the law. Therefore sin cannot touch us. Sin and the law are not going to be imputed unto us. Why? Because Christ has died for our sins. 
He is the perfect Lamb of God. So moving on through chapter 5 of the epistle to the Romans. And last time we saw how sin is a universal problem. Jew and Gentile are all under the curse of the law. They are all born in original sin. They are all going to face God's judgment if they are not born again. Let's start today's broadcast in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the fig of him that was to come. Adam was created perfect and upright. He wasn't sinless, but due to his fall, mankind now knows the difference between right and wrong, which is what original sin is. So although Adam's sons and daughters weren't guilty per se of his original sin with Eve, they have suffered the consequences of their parents' sin. And we have all suffered the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. But the verse ends on a good note when it says, He was the figure of him that was to come, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam fell and everything went into decay. But Christ came and restored humanity. Adam lost paradise. Jesus has regained paradise. 15. But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if, through the offence of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Free gift, in verse 15, should be underlined. Salvation, one more time, is a free gift. Paul says in verse 15 that many be dead. All and many are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. Verse 12, death passed upon all men. 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. 15, many, meaning all, are dead in their sins. And Jesus' death, burial and resurrection has abounded unto many. Again, meaning all. And the latter verses prove this. 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences unto justification. That word again for justification means exoneration. It means to be pardoned. Judgment equals condemnation, which equals everlasting hell. Who is it for? All men. Why? Because death has passed upon all men. Found very clearly in verse 12. But 16 ends on a good note. But the free gift, meaning you can't work for it, meaning you cannot earn it, meaning you cannot lose it either. But the free gift is of many offences unto justification. Adam's sin and his treason caused him to die spiritually. And the avalanche of sin which has come since that day was nailed ultimately to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He despised the shame, and he conquered sin and death for all of us. We are nearly halfway through chapter 5, and this is where Paul, the theologian, shines. Paul was a genius when it came to explaining the atonement, a man's problem being sin, but the remedy being Jesus Christ. Let's start today's broadcast in verse 17. For if, by one man's offence, death reigned by one, much more they, which receive abundance of grace, and of the gift of righteousness, shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered, that the offence might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. 17. Adam's sin resulted in the death of the human race. But to those that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ shall reign with him, here and now. 18. Judgment came upon everyone. 19. Through Adam's disobedience came Christ's obedience. Where Adam fell through his disobedience, Christ was victorious through his obedience. Verse 20, the law points to judgment. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And verse 21, sin reigns unto death. Sin will take you to hell forever. But Jesus Christ has abolished death. He has conquered sin. And for you to receive eternal life, you need to believe on him. And then he becomes your Lord. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? Paul knows he's going to get some flack for teaching very clearly and firmly how we are no longer under the law. We've been saved from the law. We've been saved from sin. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said the following, And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. Like I say, for those of us that hold to eternal security, we too are slanderously reported to somehow be teaching people to sin as they will. Because all of your past, present and future sins have been forgiven. But that's not true. We don't teach people to go out and live as they choose. And Paul had the same issue to deal with. Verse 2. God forbid. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Not sinless, we haven't yet reached perfection, but we are dead to sin, we are dead to the law. Why? Because Jesus Christ has paid for our very sins. Chapter 5, verse 13, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their sins unto them. So just to prove that we are not yet sinless, please turn to 1 John, chapter 1, look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Please turn to Philippians chapter 3 one more time. Look at verse 12, Paul speaking. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Perfect here means complete. It means sinless. He was still living in his cursed body in a cursed world. He wasn't sinless. You are not sinless and I am not sinless. Not yet anyway. When we die, yes. But for here and now, no. Please turn back to Romans chapter 6. So during the last broadcast, we found very clearly how we are dead to sin. We are dead to the law. Why? Because Christ has paid for our very sins on the cross. We are not sinless, but we are dead to sin. 
The law, therefore, cannot touch us. Sin, therefore, cannot touch us. And Paul knows he's going to be attacked for teaching this. He knew that the Judaizers were going to come against him, as were other ignorant people. But he pushed on nevertheless. Look at verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Many of us, meaning for those that have appropriated the atonement. Many, meaning all. All without exception. All of us that are born again have been baptised into Jesus Christ. Not a water baptism, but a spiritual baptism. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptised into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Water wasn't mentioned once. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. When you got saved, you were baptised by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ. A spiritual baptism, not a water baptism. Please turn back to Romans chapter 6. So should you be baptised once you are born again? Absolutely. If possible, by total immersion. But water does not save you. Water puts you into water. The Spirit puts you into the Spirit. The Spirit puts you into Jesus Christ, his body. Get baptised once you are saved, but baptism in and of itself does not save you. Look at verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Were you buried with the Lord Jesus Christ, literally? The answer, of course, is no. But spiritually speaking, you were. When he hung on the cross, all of your sins were put to his account. And by his precious blood, you are now forgiven. So spiritually speaking, yes, you were buried with him. Yes, you were baptised into him. Not physically, not literally, but spiritually speaking. Letterism is something which unfortunately many Christians fall into. They take every verse of the Bible to be literal, which is very dangerous. Verse 4 is speaking about your new birth. You went down with him and you came up with him, and now you walk in the newness of life. It's in reference to the new birth, that's all. Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Verse 5, we are going to look like the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. We are going to have glorified bodies. But 6 and 7 are in reference to putting yourself back under the law, like the Galatians did. They were trying to somehow revive their old natures, their old bodies. They were trying to go back to how they used to be by putting themselves back under the law. 
they were never under the law to begin with. They weren't even Jews. But by going back to the law, they were serving sin. And yet they are dead to sin. They are dead to the law. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, knowing this, don't you know, I've already told you, that our old man is crucified with him. Not literally, one more time, you weren't literally nailed to the cross with him. Spiritually speaking, you were. Symbolically speaking, you were. But not physically, not literally. Again, letterism. Be careful not to fall into that trap. And he goes on to say, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we, all of us, should not serve sin. He abolished death, and he has fulfilled the law. The woman caught in the act of adultery was told to go and sin no more. She got saved by believing on him. Faith alone. The just shall live by faith. She wasn't baptised, and she wasn't a member of any church either. She believed on him, and it was counted unto her for righteousness. Verse 7, one more time. For he, that is dead, is freed from sin. You died with him, you were baptised into him, and you were resurrected with him. Go and sin no more. The just shall live by faith. It's so simple, and yet sadly it's lost on so many people. Verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. To be dead with him, from verse 8, means to be identified with him. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. And once we are made alive, through the new birth, we live with him. We live in him. He is our being. We can do nothing without him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. The Lamb of God was sacrificed for the sins of the world just once. Pre the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, animals were being sacrificed all of the time for the sins of those that came to have their sins atoned for. The priests were always standing because their work was never done. It was an ongoing sacrifice, but Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. It is done. Look at verse 10. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Died once, past tense, liveth in the present tense. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Mass is an ongoing commission. It is an ongoing sacrifice. But that's not what we just found in Romans chapter 6. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Once saved, always saved. He will save you to the uttermost, without any works. Look at 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. 
a one and only sacrifice, period. The priests offered up sins for themselves, but not him. He was without sin. Look at chapter 9, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. His physical, literal blood atoned for our sins, period. Look at verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It was a one-off atonement. Look at verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Salvation is eternal. And he went into the holy of holies just once. That's all it needed. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. It can't be any clearer. He died for the sins of the world once. And only once. So please turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 10, one more time. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. The Mass is not needed. The Mass is irrelevant. We are saved by his death, burial and resurrection. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We are saved, therefore, by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Also from verse 10, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. His work as our mediator is an ongoing work. He mediates on our behalf. When we pray to him, he intercedes for us. So his work as our high priest is an ongoing work. It's an ongoing commission. But his atonement was a one-off event. So verse 10, one more time. In that he liveth, present tense, he liveth, present tense, unto God. He is our mediator between God and man. Verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can take verse 11 and apply it to those of us living today in reference to not feeding the old man, not living after the flesh, not being carnal. Absolutely. But primarily, Paul is speaking about your practical standing as far as the Lord is concerned. Don't go back to the law. Stop feeding the old nature. Stop trying to resurrect the dead man. Christ died once for your sins, and now you are identified with him. You were buried with him once, you were baptized with him once, and you were resurrected with him once. You were we are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour as a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com Or you can write to us at ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, 
Bolton, BL11LD, England. That's ETC Ministry, care of Pennywise, 15A, St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL11LD, England. Manchester, England, this is ETC Radio, offering verse-by-verse King James Bible studies and teachings to students of the Word of God. We are the UK's premier father and son Christian ministry, reaching the world with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through radio and internet access. You can contact us at www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com So please join us today as we study the Word of God in the Word for the World. Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible study and commentary by James Battelle. Please open your Bibles to Romans. So please turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 10, one more time. For in that he died, he died under sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth under God. The Mass is not needed. The Mass is irrelevant. We are saved by his death, burial and resurrection. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We are saved, therefore, by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Also from verse 10, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. His work as our mediator is an ongoing work. He mediates on our behalf. When we pray to him, he intercedes for us. So his work as our high priest is an ongoing work. It's an ongoing commission. But his atonement was a one-off event. So verse 10, one more time. In that he liveth, present tense, he liveth, present tense, unto God. He is our mediator between God and man. Verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can take verse 11 and apply it to those of us living today in reference to not feeding the old man, not living after the flesh, not being carnal, absolutely. But primarily, Paul is speaking about your practical standing as far as the Lord is concerned. Don't go back to the law. Stop feeding the old nature. Stop trying to resurrect the dead man. Christ died once for your sins, and now you are identified with him. You were buried with him once, you were baptized with him once, and you were resurrected with him once. You were born again once. So leave the old man in the ground, and now walk in the newness of life. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. You are in charge of your body, so don't feed the flesh. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, because if you feed the flesh, you will die. You will die physically, and you may even die prematurely. So walk in the spirit, and not in the flesh. Verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God 
as those that are alive from the dead, and your instruments as instruments of righteousness unto God. Be a slave to holiness, be a slave to righteousness. Be a rebel against sin. Live unto him, not to yourself. Why? Because you are saved, and the Lord God is your master. In chapter 2, verse 24, Paul said the following, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, Ungodly, unholy, and self-righteous Jews were causing the Gentiles to blaspheme God. So back in chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, No, don't you do that. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to righteousness. You are purchased with a price. You belong to your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns you. So don't make provisions for the flesh or for sin. Be a rebel against sin, but be righteous unto him. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Don't become legalistic like the Galatians did. Don't become carnal like the Corinthians did. The old man, the old nature, died with Christ. So be ye holy unto the Lord. Live for him, not for yourself. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not, that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 15, Paul condemns those that would live after the flesh, because they are now living under the covenant of grace. And he says, God forbid, may it never be. Verse 16, he says, don't you know that to whom you serve, to them you become their servants, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. You cannot serve two masters. 17, God be thanked that ye were, past tense, the servants of sin. But ye, all of you, have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Bible-believing Christians. We believed in our heart that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins, and we believe in the word of God. God be thanked. Praise his name. Glorify him.
18, 19 and 20 continue to build on the main theme of chapter 6. You're not under the law, you are under grace. So push on, move on. Verse 21, he asks, what fruit did you have that caused you to become ashamed? Chapter 1, verses 18 down to 32. Please read it again. For the end of those things is death. 22. But now that you are born again, being made free from sin, past tense, and become servants to God, present tense, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. What a gracious saviour. What a merciful God. For the wages of sin is death, 23. Physical death and also spiritual death. You reap what you sow. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And those three words, our Lord, our Saviour, are only applicable if you have believed on him. The just shall live by faith. Chapter 7 Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Chapter 7, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren? Don't you all know, brothers? For I speak to them that know the law, in reference to the Jews, of course. Here, Paul is acting like a prosecuting attorney. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, he made it very clear that the law cannot save you. And here he's going to use a very clever analogy. In verse 1 he says that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. From the cradle to the grave. Dominion, submission, authority. He's going to prove conclusively to the Judaizers. That as long as a person lives, if they are not saved, they are under the law. But chapter 6, verse 23 told us, For the wages of sin is death. Chapter 6, verse 2, How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Chapter 5, verse 13, But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Baptised, buried, and resurrected with him. So for the church, the law is dead. It is obsolete. Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, he makes it very clear that for a married couple living under the law, that marriage could only be annulled at death. And if the wife left her husband and married another man, she would be called an adulteress, which meant death in the Old Testament. So what is Paul telling us? A man meets a woman and gets married, and according to the law, 
she cannot divorce him, she cannot leave him until he is dead. According to the Old Testament. Chapter 7 verse 1, I speak to them that know the law. Old Testament teachings. Till death do us part. But for the new covenant, the church marries the Lord Jesus Christ. Till death do us part. And so for a saved party to go back to the law would mean that he stroke she has committed adultery. They have fallen from grace. Verse 4. Wherefore my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. This chapter ultimately is the grand finale. Paul, like I said, is acting like a prosecuting attorney. And he is saying that the law has found you guilty before Almighty God. And the consequences, one more time, from chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, physical death and also spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now he's acting as a defence attorney. Paul was a mastermind when it came to the things of God. But look at chapter 7, verse 4, one more time. Wherefore, my brethren, my brothers, ye also are become dead to the law, how? By the body of Christ, that ye, all of you, should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we, all of us, should bring forth fruit unto God. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. The fruits of the spirit are a sign that you are growing in grace. And he is still referring to this brilliant analogy, how the church has been married to Christ. The church is under grace, not the law. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He has abolished the law. He has fulfilled the law. Therefore we live unto him, not unto ourselves. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. 5 and 6 are very clear. Once again in reference to chapter 6 verse 23. Before we got saved, we were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God. We didn't seek after him, but thankfully he sought after us and found us and saved us. And also from 5 and 6, he is referring to the Jews that were trying to keep the law. And yet they were killing themselves because the law kills, but the spirit makes you alive. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Paul is preempting the response that he knows is going to come from the Jews. The Jews are going to say to Paul, Are you saying that the law is sinful? And he says, No, God forbid. I wouldn't have known it was sinful to lust if it hadn't been found in the scriptures. Paul loved the Lord, and Paul loved the law. 
but he knew that the law couldn't save you. It kills you. Only the spirit via the new birth can make you alive. Also, he's not telling us that he didn't know the difference between right and wrong if it hadn't been for the scriptures because he had a conscience. And chapter 1, verses 18 down to 32, makes it very clear that mankind universally knows the difference between right and wrong. He's upholding the law. He's elevating the law. But at the same time, he's still wearing his prosecuting attorney's hat. Verse 8. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Not physically, of course, but spiritually, of course. 10. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. It can't be any clearer. The law kills you. The law convicts you. The law destroys you. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Paul was a righteous man. Paul was a godly man. And Paul was an educated man. But he says one more time from verse 9, Sin revived and I died. Had it been possible for Paul to have kept the law, he would have kept it. But Abraham couldn't keep it, and David couldn't keep it. Only one person kept the law perfect. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is God Almighty. Verse 11. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Why? Because it came from God. God is holy. He cannot lower his standards. He cannot compromise on sin. Therefore man has a problem. God is holy, man is not. What is the solution? The Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Also from verse 9, Paul says that he was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and he died, meaning he came to the age of accountability. And at that stage, he was convicted. He was under the law. And as a result, and as a consequence of coming of age, of now being accountable to the Lord, he said in verse 11 that the law slew him. Again, not physically, but spiritually speaking. And just before I sign off from this broadcast, one quick footnote, if I may. Chapter 5, verse 13, one more time. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Meaning, until you come of age, the law won't touch you. Sin won't condemn you. If you die before the age of accountability, you won't go to hell, you will go to heaven. Why? Because you're not yet old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. And therefore Jesus Christ has substitutionally saved you from your sins. I am referring, of course, to infants and mentally impaired people. Call the innocents in the Old Testament. Suffer the little children to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, 
that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. I died, verse 9, it slew me, verse 11, and by 13, it became exceeding sinful. What is he speaking about? A, the law, and B, his flesh. He was born in sin. I was born in sin. You are born in sin. We are all born in sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we all continue to fall short of the glory of God. Paul, in his role as a prosecuting attorney, has just put himself on the stand. If you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. The law cannot save you. There is no atonement within the law. And when a saved person tries to keep the law, he, stroke, she, falls from grace. They dishonour the Lord. So if the law can't save you, what can? The death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from verses 14 down to 25, Paul is going to become a defence attorney because he too needed a saviour. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God, after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, present tense, but I am carnal, present tense. Here you find the two natures in the believer. Paul wanted to serve the Lord. Paul wanted to keep the law. Why? Because he loved God. He loved the law. He meditated on the law every day, but it was impossible to serve God and keep the law at the same time. That's the Adamic nature, one more time. Man is at enmity with God. Man on his own cannot please God. The Lord has to do something for him, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Also from 14 down to 24, Paul is making it very clear how that you cannot serve the Lord if you are born again, while at the same time trying to keep the law. It's like being married to a person and trying to please somebody outside of the marriage. Two's company, three's a crowd. So Paul has gone from being a prosecuting attorney, making it very clear how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and for those that want to keep the law after they have been saved, are now adulterers. And from there he's gone on to become a defending attorney, defending the law and defending the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, realising 
just how weak he is and vicariously all of us are. So what does he do? He throws himself at the mercy of the court. Verse 25, one more time. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When man is in dire straits, he has to turn to the Lord God of the Bible and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God saves that sin of the moment he calls on his name. The law condemns you and it kills you. But Jesus Christ forgives you and makes you alive. So if you, a saved person, tries to keep the law after you have been saved and forgiven and exonerated, you will die. But if you continue on with the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with him in the spirit, he will continue to grow you and mature you and to prune you. And you will be victorious in everything that you do for him. Why? Because he is at the centre of your life and he lives within you and it is he that makes these things possible. Not you walking in the flesh, but you walking in the spirit. All glory to God. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. No condemnation... No damnation, no judgment to those that are in Christ Jesus, for those that are in God the Father, and for those that are in God the Holy Spirit. And also God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in you as well. The triune God lives within you. Outside of the Trinity, you are the most important person in the world, if you are born again. Please turn to Psalm 103. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression from us. Look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Look at verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Please turn back to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 1 one more time. There is therefore now, not in the future, not possibly, not maybe, but there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no damnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. And that only occurs once you are born again. The latter part of verse 1, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, in reference to law and grace, Chapters 5, 6 and 7 made it very clear that we, the born-again children of God, are not under the law. We are married to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are married to grace. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemn sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh 
cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Verses 2 down to 9 continue the theme. How we that are born again, how we that are in Christ Jesus, are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit. With the flesh representing the law, and the spirit representing grace. Old covenant and new covenant. Those that walk in the flesh cannot please God. In fact, they are carnally minded, according to verse 6. And the result of such people is death. Also from verse 9, Paul says that if any man does not have the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. No spirit, no salvation. No salvation, you can't have the mind of Christ. Therefore, you are at enmity against God. Verse 7, why? Because your mind is carnal, and as such, it cannot be subject to the law of God. You must be born again. And once you are born again, you walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Verse 10, and of Christ being you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit... We are now out of time for this broadcast. Please join us next time. You have been listening to ETC Radio. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as a result of hearing this message, or if you would like to contact us for prayer, or maybe just inquire about further messages and free DVD Bible studies, you can do so via our website address, which is www.excatholicsforchrist.com That's excatholicsforchrist.com Or you can write to us at ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL1 1LD, England. That's ETC Ministry, Care of Pennywise, 15A St. Andrew's Court, Bolton, BL1 1LD, England.